The challenge we have when we have a text like, watch out for the liars, the false teachers, but also the false Christians who look like Christians, kind of, talk like they are Christians, kind of, come into the church and at least participate in the outward forms of the church, kind of, but who are inwardly ravenous wolves, people who follow nothing but their own appetites, those who ultimately will sow needless divisions among us, and if we listen to them, destroy our congregation. The hard part is you might walk out thinking that's you when it's not. The purpose of this text is not to make the faithful Christian afraid that he's not a faithful Christian. And so again, if you haven't yet made that move intellectually from legalist to believer in salvation by grace, let's try to do that first right now. Legalist, a person who believes that God is going to judge you based on what you do. That means not only on the last day before the final judgment, but like right now. Like something bad happens and you think, oh, it's because I did this. Or you want something good to happen and you think, well, I better behave better so I can get my prayers answered. Now, you might not have that thought often, but it is common. It is in our flesh to just fall back on that kind of thinking, legalistic thinking. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the setting free of you from that thinking as truth. So that even when you find that thinking in you, you may tell yourself it's a lie. That God is not judging you today in your life here based on what you do. He has judged you to be eternally his chosen son in his ever begotten son, Jesus Christ, an heir to the kingdom which will last forever. And he is bringing you today into such a time as this for you to stand in that faith, knowing that nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Remember Romans 8. I mean, we've gone through the whole book, but the pinnacle of it is Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for you. Let it sink in. There's no condemnation for you. Well, what if I do something really stupid and get myself killed? You're still not condemned. You're just going to rise from the dead someday. You're so free. It's like a video game with one life that's an everlasting life. You die and it gets better forever and ever. It's better than a game. It's a reality that broken is fixed and it's fixed forever and you know it. Now, Paul's warning here is not, be worried, lest you're accidentally a false teacher. His warning is, so when you see a false teacher, don't listen. Don't let anyone begin to tell you legalistic thinking is the way to go. Don't let anyone begin to put in the place of the good news of the son of David being risen from the dead. He is risen. Don't let anyone put into the place of that some other gospel. Some other good news, some other path. Now, this never means don't be wise. This never means reject the law. It just means you now don't stand under the law. You stand under grace, which lets you for the first time maybe begin to stand over the law and walk on it and use it as a guide 
as to where you ought to go. Now again, the false teacher and the false Christian, let's just call them maybe the hypocrite today. The hypocrite doesn't want to stay on that narrow path. The hypocrite recognizes that if he gets off that narrow path, he can maybe enjoy himself a bit more. Maybe it's a little easier. If we think about the parable of the sower, where Jesus talks about the farmer casting the seed and it falls on the three different types of soil that don't produce any fruit. You got the path, you got the weeds, you got the rocks. The things that make someone get off the path is first off, the devil just lies to you and you listen. Second off, the cares and pleasures of this world lead you astray. You see Pinocchio's Pleasure Island off in the, in the corner, lots of cotton candy and free rides. Yeah, I'm going to go there. Or then the third one is that the sun scorches it. There is persecution. There is struggle. You find the discipline of saying no to things or of having to give up things or sacrifice things too much. Right? So you can see in those two that are not the raven, the devil taking away the word, you can see in those other two, it's either for pleasure or for pain. People listen to lies because of the promise of pleasure or because of the fear of pain. Right? And so that's where then you know your flesh is being led astray when those are the things that are teaching you rather than the clear and, and perfect word of God. Now, again, we're going to get into the actual text here, Romans chapter 16. This is on page 950 of your pew Bible, if you've got a pew Bible. And I might as well do another advertisement for those three by five blank note cards in the pew in front of you. Those are there for you to go ahead and take them out and keep it with the Bible. Make a note. Jot something down. Maybe write down, I'm not a legalist anymore. I'm under grace. Yeah, something like that. Uh, maybe write down... I need to beware of false teachers. Yeah? The idea of writing something down is not even that you would look at it later. Isn't this interesting? I find this interesting. Most people think taking notes is so you can memorize them for the test, and that shows you how bad education is today. The reason to write something down is because it puts it deeper into your mind and heart than it would be if you just listened. Because you have to listen and then regurgitate. And as you regurgitate it on the page, you're going to read it again. So you're actually listening the second time by reading it. And what that does is it causes it to form a path in your head. It becomes a, a channel in your mind, which you then are more likely to rely upon later. So anyway, please consider taking a note or two with Romans 16 today. As we start on page 950, if you look at verses 1 through 18, it is one of the longest sections of greetings in any of Paul's letters. He always closes his letters with a greeting. Say hi to this person. This person says hi to you. But rarely does he go to such length or mention so many names. Uh, in the late service sermon, I'm going to try to go through this bit by bit and say what we do know which isn't very much, about most of these names. So if you'd like to learn that, you can always find those sermons at our website, sp815.org, or on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash R-E-V-F-I-S-K. That's Rev Fisk, that's me. The sermons are always there. You can check them out later. Or if you're one of those crazy people that podcasts, just search your podcast feed for saved, saved, one word, and, and all the sermons show up there sometime during the week. So we're going to skip that, though, in, in this service today and just, just move past that. But no, there's a huge section of greetings, lots of names, some of them in Acts, some of them not. Luke is mentioned. Um, 
Jumping down to verse 17, though, where he, he comes back and begins this final section of warning. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Let's just stop there. To, to watch out. He wants you to be awake. This is not a hobby. It's something you just kind of do or go through the motions of. This is a life that is everlasting, that is begun right now, that distinguishes you from the rest of the world. Nobody else is part of this except for Christians. And what's different? We're awake. We're awake. Everyone else is a zombie. Can you imagine it? I, I don't know. Maybe that's hard. Maybe that's easy. They're not eating each other's flesh yet, although the New York Times had an article about it two weeks ago. Kind of weird. Cannibalism. Weird. But they're not eating each other's flesh. They're just walking around. Uh, I want food. Uh, I want fun. Uh, what's next? Uh, I'm worried. Like That's all they got. That's all they got. You have been given the ability to wake up and know that even the hunger, even the desires, even the fears, these are passing. These will not last. Soon enough, the sky is going to part. Jesus is going to show up. He's going to snap his fingers. You're going to explode in lightning-like righteousness with a new body that is imperishable and beyond imagining to live in a planet like this one, only better forever and ever and ever. That's the secret of being able to be hungry. Or maybe not being able to do the thing you so wanted to do. Nothing that you lose in this life will not be restored 100-fold. You didn't get to visit Europe? Guess what? The next planet's going to be better. You didn't get to go out and eat every night? Didn't get to buy that private jet? Guess what? Next, next life, you're going to get something better. Ride an eagle. I don't know. It'll be cool, though. So you have something more to look forward to, which gives you every reason to watch, watching for that return, watching for the destruction of this life. Because what will happen repeatedly again and again in this life is those who do not believe that are going to build these giant idols. They're going to build these gods. They won't always call them gods, but they'll be gods. They're going to build these gods, and then the gods are going to fall down on them. Think Tower of Babel. Think the Flood. Think the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, that statue that gets struck by a, a stone in the vision of Daniel and then collapses entirely. Again and again, that's what's going to happen. And this not only happens with civilizations, maybe just like ours right now, but it also happens with cities. It happens with families. It happens with individual lives. It can even happen with a certain year or two of your life. And the lesson of the Christian is to watch out to get off that path, to stop trying to build up the idol, to stop trying to make the path to heaven or the statue which will protect me. And to instead know for certain that I stand, yeah, in a ruined world. It's actually a ruined world. I stand here with my head held high because I'm a son of God now. And that means I can endure it. The game is not eternal pleasure right now. The game is endurance with patience and faith. I had this thought recently, a little bit of a tangent here, but this thought about our Lord Jesus Christ and the, the, the insane kind of decision he made to create an entire universe so that he could go into it and live the life that Jesus lived, which is a life of sorrow, 
a life of affliction, a life in which no matter how good he tried to be, and he was perfect, it ends up with him being nailed to a cross in utter suffering. He thought that was a good idea. He thought that would be something worth doing. And of course, amazingly, it's because it's for you, because he wants to be in fellowship with you. But I think there's something also heroic about it. I used to play a lot of video games, and the value of a great video game would be it was hard. An easy video game was boring. I wanted a survivor simulator where I had to work to make it, and I barely get through, and at the end, I would come out victorious because I was willing to endure. And the amazing thing is not only did Christ make the ultimate one for him to just actually live and then burst out of the tomb on the other side, you're in it. And it's yours too. The entire thing designed, not only for him, but for you to live this woken up life of patient endurance in the knowledge of his resurrection, standing firm against the tides of those who are blinded zombies trying to eat their way to idolatrous salvation. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. For those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Let's start with the word doctrine there. Uh, doctrine is one of these English words that I'd love to save. I always, I'm kind of on a quest to save the old words, even as the entire language, have you noticed it's, it's falling apart? I mean, what is a woman and that kind of stuff? Huh? Uh, the whole language is falling apart. We can't save the word woman. How am I going to save the word doctrine? much less dogma, right? I like that word, dogma. But the word in the Greek is, is not so highfalutin as doctrine. Uh, it's, it's the word teaching, the word teaching. And the word teaching comes from roots that have to do with passing on, right? So it's connected to receiving and taking at the same time. It's not the same word, but they're connected to each other, right? So to have something that is, that is doctrine, that is teaching, is to have something that was before you, that someone else had, that they then give to you, and it's so real, you can actually give it to somebody else. It's not just an opinion. It is, and, and here's really the word you want to use for English, is truth. Well, there's a different word for truth in Greek. It's not the word Paul uses here. But when you see that word doctrine, it's going to help if you're like, okay, that means truth. And what we're being warned against is those who create obstacles contrary to the truth we have received. What's the truth we have received? Well, as Lutherans, we're pretty confident in this small catechism thing. The Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, that's true. No matter what anybody else says, that's true. We're also fairly confident in something called the Augsburg Confession. I don't preach about this often, but it's a valuable thing. You can pick up a copy for free on the table back there. The Augsburg Confession is the statement that makes Lutherans Lutherans. When the whole Martin Luther Reformation thing was taking place, it wasn't about what Luther thought. It was about a whole section of Europe saying to the Pope, we're pretty sure this is Christianity and what you're teaching is different. The Augsburg Confession for us is truth, but more than even the small catechism and the, and the Augsburg Confession, why are these things some things that we can be confident in, what they say about Jesus? Because they're founded on what the scriptures say. 
So truly, when we talk about the doctrine received, we must emphasize it is what the Bible is. The Bible is the doctrine you have received. It is the thing that has been passed down to you from generation to generation to generation. And even with translation, it does not change. We have copies of stuff from the earliest years. You trained me or other pastors like me. I mean, you didn't send me to seminary yourself, but you pay the money that goes to seminary from time to time. You send others to seminary and someone sent me to be able to read those in the original language so that we as a people could cling to this truth. That no one could come along with a a twisted English version and pull the wool over our eyes. And so again, here's here's the, the call though for you is, well, trust your English version is pretty good, generally speaking, unless it's put out by a cult like the Mormons or the Seventh-day Adventists. So trust your English version, generally speaking, and cling to it. Get to know it. It's your mind. It's your sword. It's better than anything else, including your heart. Did you hear in Jeremiah, your heart's a deceptive thing. It can't be trusted. It's most likely to choose the wrong answer. Have you ever tried to guess your way through a test? It doesn't work out so well most of the time. Yeah, same reality. But here you have a book of utter wisdom standardized with the grace of God choosing you that's going to guaranteed when you live within its pages make you into a person who stands and sees. And for that reason, watch out for those who come along with some other answer. Uh, I've been asked in the past, not usually by you here at St. Paul, um, why am I as a pastor against what they call contemporary worship or, or praise and worship? And for many people, this comes down to, we like guitar, well, we like organ. And a lot of times that is just the argument. Well, I, I'm old fashioned. I like it the old way. Well, I need something new. That's not my style of music. My answer has nothing to do with any of that. I actually like guitar quite a bit. I love to rock out, and I don't mind contemporary Christian music on the radio. I mean, sometimes it's pretty cheesy and sometimes it's pretty wrong, but sometimes it's kind of hopeful. It's kind of nice, and they're getting better. I mean, in the 70s, it was really bad, let me tell you. It wasn't, it wasn't rock and roll then, for sure. Uh, but, but why do I have a, a, a position where, like, if you as a member come to me in this congregation, you say, Pastor, I think we should have some praise and worship songs. I'm just going to say no. We're never going to do that here. You might as well join one of the other churches in town that does that. We're never going to do that here. Why do I say that? Is it because the organ was given by Jesus? No, no, the organ was not given by Jesus. It's because those who started that movement, those who began the movement that I call revivalism, it's 200 years old, started it like this. If we don't make the church more entertaining, people won't come. Guess what that is? That's not doctrine handed down by the Bible. Guess what that is? Something that causes division. Have you noticed? Guess what divides the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as much as anything else these days? This very thing. So someone comes into our midst and says, we have to change or we're going to die. And we got to do this thing that the Bible doesn't say you have to do, but we have to do it or we're going to die. And the result is we're divided. The definition of what this text says, watch out for that. Watch out for that. Don't be led astray by that. Does that mean if Caleb ever pulls out an acoustic guitar to accompany this, I'm going to say, Caleb, you're out of here? No, it's not about the instrument. It's about your assumptions of what worship is. 
Now, I mentioned the Augsburg Confession again. Very clearly, worship is Jesus coming to you in word and sacraments. One of the things you'll notice in the big churches that do the rock and roll is very quickly, the altar is to the side or back further so the rock band can sit right up in front. They confess where their faith is by what they do. So, it's not about the music. It's about the doctrine. And is it something we believe we need? And if you come and you say to me, Pastor, you know what? If we don't get VBS back, how are we ever going to get the children in church? I'm going to say, I'm really glad VBS is gone for a number of reasons. But honestly, if you're going to tell me we need it, then we don't need it. The church got along great without VBS for like 1950 years. And then we started VBS and it all fell apart. So you've got to prove to me it's got value. Now, I'm not saying VBS is the cause of all the problems, but I'm saying it's not the solution. Why? Well, it's not in the Bible. It doesn't say. What's the Bible say? It says fathers teach your children. Fathers teach your children, not fathers send your kids to other people to teach your children. Now, of course, if you've got to have your kids learn Latin or math or whatever, you might have to send them to a school. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about opening the Bible at home and reading it because you believe it's true because you think it's valuable, and letting your kids see that you do that. Doing it at the dinner table, after supper, even if you don't feel like it, especially when you don't feel like it. Just open it up, read it out loud, say, I'm too tired, i got to go to bed, but it was important that I read this tonight. That will do more than two years of catechism class. It will, Dad. It will. Okay, I'm kind of off on a tangent here. Let's get back to it, though. Doctrine and avoiding those who create divisions by teaching contrary to that doctrine. The end of the verse again says, then avoid them. And there is, there is no more blatant warning statement or, or commendation that is given with regard to false teachers and false Christians than this in the whole Bible. This is the, the most direct that it gets. Avoid them. Now, does that mean like if you run into them down at you know, farm and fleet, you can't shake their hand? Maybe, maybe, probably not. I mean, you you can't go out of the world. You You have to live and move and have transactions. So he's not really meaning like walk by the other side of the street. Although then again, it kind of depends on who they are and what they're teaching. I mean, my guess is that if you went down to, to Farm and Fleet and had to check out and you had a choice between two checkout people and one person was like eating human flesh with filed teeth to a point, and the other person was dressed like you and looks like you, my guess is you're going to stand in that line, you know? So that's, that's actually hearing this. Like, look, if this person is evil, maybe don't spend time with them. It's kind of a good idea. And, and for you young people then, this has a lot to do with the friends and the company that you keep. Paul says it this way in another place, bad company ruins good character. There's this pride in us. We all like to think I'm strong. I'm me. No one else can move me. I do what I want. But really, we're all doing what everyone else tells us to do pretty much all the time. Like the wind is blowing and we're getting blown by it pretty much all the time. Yeah, that's why it's important to have the wind of the spirit and the scriptures blowing on you every single day. And not to surround yourself with people who blow you in bad directions. 
And I know that to some extent you can't avoid that in the world, whether you're at work, whether you're at school, you're going to be around people who disagree with you, you're going to be around people who don't believe what you believe. So watch out. Know what it is. Don't, don't be deceived by it, right? And again, don't choose to make that your life when you can avoid it, in the places where you can. Surround yourself with other Christians. Surround yourself with people who believe and teach and confess the truth that you believe. Yeah? He then goes on and says, for such persons, verse 18, do not serve our Lord Christ. This is so, so important. I'm like taking way too long on the text, but so important. If somebody is not a Christian, they don't serve Jesus. This doesn't just mean they're going to hell and that's sad. It's not going to be sad on the day they go to hell. You're going to say hallelujah. The Bible says this. You're going to rejoice with songs of praise. Now, right now, if they're your best friend or your blood relation, it's okay to feel sad. That's normal. Yeah, that's normal. But let's not do that yet. Let's just kind of paint in a general picture, okay, of the person who's not a Christian, which is most people running to and fro in this country right now. They don't serve Jesus. That means they hate Jesus. And that means if they know about what you believe about Jesus, they'll ultimately hate you too. Know that. Just, just know that. Let that be something that's real to you. I think that will do more for the mission of the church than all of the attempts to pity them and love them into the church. It would do more to stand up and say to ourselves, we are different. How are we different? We believe in grace. This is just it. The person who doesn't serve Jesus, guess what he serves? His belly in a legalistic way. Always. Always. To the point where the Psalms say they don't rest until they've done violence. Now, I know for the Christian, they're like, well, who would be like that? Let me tell you, a lot of people, actually. More than you would think. Far too many who are, in fact, in charge of things. That's not new. That's always been the case. Not many of the rich and the elite and the powerful in the world are Christians. That's never been the case. Most Christians are average, normal people like you. But one of the great lies that's happening right now is playing on your niceness. It's playing on your assumption that everybody else thinks like you do. And Paul's warning you here, don't make that assumption. Know that most of the people in the world, the wide path that leads to destruction, doesn't think like you do. And so what do they do? They serve their own appetites, it says, right? Their belly. And this can mean not just food, although food is a pretty driving force in most people's lives. Yeah? Um, but also just your desires. They do what they want. And the reason they don't like Christianity is it gets in the way of what they want. Marriage, above all things, apparently gets in the way of what a lot of people want. And they're trying to cast it off. Right? They also then, it says, by smooth talk and flattery, deceive the hearts of the naive. So smooth talk, clever words. They'll play on their words. Uh, let me give you one of the classic forms. I see this so much now. It's called the Mott and the Bailey. It has to do with ancient military warfare where you have a strong position and a weak position. But it's not really that in terms of, uh, I don't think warfare, I think now a conversation. Somebody wants to forward a weak position. Um, uh, not all women have uteruses. 
Okay. They want to forward that idea to you. It's a little bit weak, though, scientifically, right? Um, but they forward that idea to you. Uh, and then you kind of destroy that idea. And so they retreat to a stronger position. You hate people that are different than you. And you begin to defend yourself. No, I don't. No, no, no I really love people. And then they go back to their other argument. They take two ideas, a weak and a strong, one that they can't defend, one that they can defend, and they play them as if they're the same argument. Pay attention, like while you're watching the news. It happens like right in front of you on the news. Pay attention to that. It's smooth talk. It's rhetoric. It's tricks. By smooth talk and then flattery, they they will play you up. They, They will tell you how great you are when you agree with their wicked ways. They will come along and try to smooth you. Yeah? And I, I would be remiss, we're getting close to time here. I would be remiss if I didn't kind of share this with you, though. I have been through now as a pastor multiple call processes. It's been a while, and I don't hope to go through any anytime soon. But I've been through multiple call processes. And it is interesting to me how regularly the Christian Congregation Call Committee just wants me to be smooth and flattering. And you know this because they start to ask questions like, what are you going to do for the youth? And at the end of the day, what they really want is for me to be friendly and smile. And if I'm friendly and smile, then I have a good chance of being called. And if I just tell you the truth, well, here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to preach like this, but I don't smile the entire time. I may not get that call. I probably won't, in fact. We naturally like smooth talk and flattery, which is why Paul has to warn us, watch out. Learn to listen for the truth rather than for what you feel. Key. All right. We're almost out of time here. Four, he goes on. And again, remember how I started this. Like this isn't meant to make you question your faith. He says it here in verse 18. Your obedience is known to all. I'll take that as your faith is known. You sitting here in St. Paul Lutheran Church, Pastor Fisk thinks you're here because you're a Christian. I assume you're a Christian. I assume you believe. I assume that you're awake. Yeah? That's a good thing. Stand on that. Let God say that to you and be like, yeah, it's true. I I may be awake weekly, but he has woken me up. Amen. Can, Can someone testify? Thank you very much. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise. Yeah? Wisdom, that means to see. To see. I want you to see. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I want you to see the difference in walking what is good because you're free people now. You don't have to make decisions based upon your flesh. You don't have to make decisions based upon peer pressure. You don't have to make decisions based upon thinking you need to do it to be good. You can simply do what's good. There's no other life like that in this entire age. It is the best game that was ever made. It's better than a game. It is true. And then the promise in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Of course, that has to do with the day of resurrection. You can also know that in every season of trial that you walk through in this age, in every season of trial that a family undergoes, in every season of collapse that a city or a country goes through, nonetheless, for those who are the remnant standing firm in the grace of Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to crush Satan through it all. There's not a single bad thing that happens to you that isn't moving toward the better thing, which is your confidence in Jesus in spite of the rest of it. You can take it to the bank. So him who is able to strengthen you according to this gospel of the son of David, we're in verse 25, the preaching of Jesus, 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That is your resurrection right now. The only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.